spoken maybe. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Andy Ann's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional materials. You wake up one morning after not reading a book since your school days and you decide to be a writer. With no good or bad writing to compare against your own, you just know how to write and anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. Hell, maybe they're jealous of your natural ability to craft the masterpiece. After all, most people need to learn through a combination of books, courses, critical feedback and workshops. Not you though. It's not their fault. They don't realise your natural talent, but they soon will. How to Write Wrong is the new book by Amanda Steele. The book, which is an interactive story, gives the reader multiple options throughout its story. The book can be purchased from Amazon. Spoken Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, Spoken Label dot bandcamp.com. On Bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled, if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running plots for the podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy End, Spoken Label, back in the house again on Zoom again. I'm speaking to, tonight to a writer I've had lots of respect for for a good few years now. Now, just my, and she's blushing in the background now. We always make it. But it, was, it came up as a really good opportunity this because um, Avon, who I'm going to speak to you in a minute, I've been a fan of her work for probably pushing 10 years now, actually. And I've never, I've never, we've never actually met, but hopefully we will some point along the line. So, <laughs> but Avon, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Tell me who you are. Yeah. And hi. where are you writing and where she came from? We'll start from there. Yeah, great. Hi, um, I'm Yvonne Reddick. So it's absolutely lovely uh, to meet you virtually, Andy. What a pleasure. I've been enjoying your podcasts. Uh, So in terms of how I got started, I mean, there was sort of poetry going around at school. The ones that I really remember staying with me were Seamus Heaney's poetry, and he writes beautifully about childhood beautifully about animals, landscape, um, and and beautifully uh, about really, really major political upheavals in our time. I wouldn't have known that when I was a kid. I thought, you know, what he wrote about childhood was beautiful. So I I don't think I would have encountered his poems till I was at least 10. Um, Yeah, but my dad had a copy of the new poetry by Al Alvarez, and it was scribbled all over in pencil. (laughs) It was his O-level text, and he will have been interested in some of the poems and annotating them like a dutiful schoolboy, and bored at other moments because he's he's practicing his signature. Um, So I got this idea about what modern-ish poetry was, um, but it was still you know, quite dominated by the work of men, um, by the work of white people. And I would have had this snapshot of what interested Alvarez and uh, the Alvarez generation, as they've been called in the 60s. So that was uh, that was around when I was growing up, which I suppose is, is quite lucky. And um, school, school were great. Um, when it came to introducing me to a few things. But uh, 
yeah, I, I suppose I kept writing at university thanks to other writers being there. I was really, really lucky when I was studying. Uh, I encountered the brilliant um, all-round genius of letters who is David Morley at Warwick University. Um, David was unfailingly generous towards his students. You know, I've been in touch with him ever since and he's inspired a lot of people. So in terms of people keeping me writing, I think that that was happening. And if you're part of a writer's group when you're a student, that can be wonderfully enabling as well because you can support each other. Yeah, I agree completely there. I did that. I got into a writing group straight after I left uni myself. And when that one finished, I then formed another one. And after that one finished, I formed my own writing workshops. I've been running one about 15 years now, one way or another. So it's great fun. And those, those friendships last a lifetime. It's great. Completely. So obviously, like your relations, your own writing, obviously. Then. And obviously, I know after you left Union, and obviously, where you eventually went into doing your own first collection, didn't you? Back in 2012, the Nanform. Yeah, um, that was my first ever pamphlet. And the way it came about was really quite strange. I remember feeling like the luckiest person in the universe when I realised that that was going to be published. I was so happy. I, I was so excited. There's, there's just nothing like that, really. Um, I'd, been, I'd been writing for quite a long time, for several years, and I got a couple of things in magazines, and that was wonderful, but there'd been a lot of rejections. We I go through that process. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I still get plenty of rejections. Um, it's our rite of passage, isn't it? Oh, I know. It's, I know somebody that actually, that, that's going, I forget who it was now, actually bought a book out of the more fanciful rejections they got. That's amazing. That's oh, no. fantastic. Yeah, my mate sent me um, my mate sent me an anthology called Mortification about really good literary rejections. It's I'm gonna love that. But anyway, yeah. it makes it makes you know you're not alone at least. Oh yeah, quickly. Yeah, anyway, I I I was so happy when that pamphlet came out. I was quite shy about it at the time, but um, it was published by Sea Press up in Orkney. It's on recycled paper. It's, oh, wow. um, yeah, it's on environmentally friendly ink. So there are no oil products um, that have gone into the printing of that thing. Fantastic. And yeah, it's an interesting artifact. And I look back at it now and I think, okay, there are things that I would change, but some of my themes have actually either come back or they've, they've been there for a long time for me. So I'm I'm interested in nature. I'm fascinated by animals and the environment. I'm interested uh, in climate change. Maybe there's a little bit of that in landforms. And I'm very interested in, in geological processes. You know, my family would have friends who were geologists and they'd come and talk about rocks and to me this was fascinating what child doesn't want to be a paleontologist when they grow up come on <laughs> so i suppose I, I kind of got around that by at least writing about it um yeah i'm i'm fond of that pamphlet although at the time it came out i remember being very shy and i i was kind of a bit um a bit self-conscious. I, I didn't really make a song and dance about launching it, but people were very kind about it, which was I, lovely. I think you do when you're doing your first page of publication like that. I know mine is my first book. I was like, I was always nervous to go show people it, and it's it's not like I was a child time, did it? We just stand back to it. You felt like you were reluctant to let it go, weren't you? Like your arms and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know. I've spoken to people whose work I absolutely love and who have done loads of books and they've said something similar. I chatted to Jackie Kay after a writing event and she said that before her first poetry book came out, she had the sense that she was being stripped naked and really, really quite discombobulated by the whole experience. And I found that deeply comforting because I thought you're Jackie Kay you're amazing how yeah. can you possibly be 
worried about this, but she said she was, and I heaved a little sigh of relief at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do, it's the first one, you, you know, mm. stop your first collection. It's mm -hmm. the nerves that's trying to get out there, because you're probably afraid you might put too much of yourself into that first book. You're trying to hold yeah. it back sometimes. But I sort of, obviously, we know, we know from chat to you, you did a follow-up follow collection, Dear Heart, didn't you? Through four years later. Uh -huh. and yeah. How did that compare then to your first collection? I suppose things have moved on in terms of form. Uh, so the shape of my poems is a little bit different in that one. I was getting some wonderful help from Zafar Kunial with that. Uh, he mentored me at the Wordsworth Trust and that was brilliant. I don't know why I didn't realise sooner that a lot of writers will have somebody to guide them and it won't just be the editor who can be wonderfully helpful. It might be a poet they, they really know and trust uh, who will help them to shape their work and, and Zaffa's editorial eye was incredibly shrewd. So what he did uh, to help those poems get into their final shape was was really fantastic and it taught me in the long run about how to edit poems and that's a skill you you take with you for your entire life you're always editing your stuff you're always yeah. editing yourself and you're always learning i definitely am um but a lot of what i've learned in terms of you know how to pick exactly the right word has, has stayed with me ever since and uh, yeah, I was lucky Alec Newman from Knives, Hawks and Spoons took that on. He, he publishes a whole spectrum of work from the experimental um, to slightly more lyric and traditional stuff. And I, I like what he does. So it was good fun doing that pamphlet. And uh, it has a beautiful cover image by the artist Diana Zwiebach, uh, who's a friend of mine who lives in Blackpool. Um, and I guess... There's maybe a little bit more about the body as well in, in that pamphlet, but there's a lot about nature and animals for certain. I'm never going to tire of that. <laughs> it's always going to be there, basically, isn't it? So, Probably, I mean, even if it's in the background. <laughs> yeah, I think you do, like, as writers, I think you always find, when you mean to or not, you find your own voice eventually. And your mm -hmm. case is always going to have that, you know, it says nature and whatever, and talking about all these animals. Whether it's in the background, whether it's indirect or not, it's always going to be there. So, I know mine's always got a lot about place and the self-existence. Yeah. So, yeah, but you do your fast what you find. Now, where did the idea come from to your Ted Hughes book? That your Ted Hughes environmentalist and eco poem. It comes from way back. So, when I was at university doing my undergrad degree, I did a dissertation about Ted Hughes and environmental ideas. That dissertation has actually shaped a lot of my work. So I did research on Ted Hughes's river poetry for my doctorate. Um, and I, I was encouraged slowly to expand the scope of that work. Ted Hughes did so much as an environmental activist. He was deeply committed to this cause. It is extraordinary to see just how hard he fought for all kinds of issues from reforestation to the countryside to fighting for the black rhinos in Kenya to campaigning um, against the extinction of salmon and steelhead trout and the drop in their numbers to polluted rivers in Devon. I mean, it's actually amazing how much he did. It took up a great amount of his time. Um, and when he got the laureate ship, those demands on his time increased. And what you find in the archives is extraordinary. So his archive tells the story of these campaigns. And it would be a little bit strange if his environmental awareness didn't feed into his poetry. I think the two cross fertilise in very, very rich ways. Um, so there's a big archive of farming diaries and fishing diaries and travel diaries that we have. It's in the British Library. 
the writing is not always easy to read. <laughs> yeah, that might be like my handwriting, unintelligible. <laughs> uh, right, too. But I've gone through probably two prescriptions of glasses. And what, what, just, just during the archive. Blooming <laughs> up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's working at the computer as well. Uh, but I mean, his handwriting is at times really unintelligible. You get used to a writer's handwriting with time. But the things you learn are fascinating. So in Ireland, he was protesting and campaigning at an anti-nuclear demonstration. Um, his son was uh, an environmental biologist. He was researching fish biology in East Africa. He was researching salmon in um, North America and Alaska. So these two men were sharing a love of fishing and they were learning from one another about the environment. And that is fascinating. Uh, now, I don't always agree with Ted Hughes's stance on hunting. I think the whole conservation argument uh, about hunting that he puts forward doesn't always hold water. Although I think with his support of the countryside and country issues, it makes sense from that side of things. Um, but the letters I've, I've read are, are just extraordinary. The causes he backed are amazing. And Hughes is very controversial, oily controversial. And for me, as a woman, to look at his documents, you know, there are things I won't always like, or there will be things that shock me. Um, but what I find really inspiring is his legacy as an environmentalist. That's something about his work that will always stay with me, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. So how long did this book take to write? And it's quite a long, long drawn out book, I suppose. <laughs> it's a long slog. Oh, I bet it is. <laughs> it's a long slog. It takes a long time uh, to do archival work. Um, and also the process of editing a scholarly book can take a very long time because you have to make get your footnotes right. <laughs> um, yeah, you have to respond to uh, a process of academics advising you about the publication as well. Um, so that takes up additional time. But I've been lucky with the book. Uh, I've been really, really fortunate. I've, I've had a great publisher in Palgrave. Um, I've been really, really lucky in, in terms of the way it's been received as well. People have been kind to me at review. So that's all you can ever ask for. And it's it's been a dream to get the thing into print. I've been really, really happy with, with what it's done. I think that I'm always a believer in the world and that whatever book you do, it, uh, it influences what you do in the rest of your writing career. Like, mm. That would have led, led to what you do next and basically. And everything that's gone before. I think it all runs in a straight line, whether you mean to or not sometimes. And you were telling me before about your Apple anthology, weren't you, which you edited very early on in your writing career as well. So do you want to tell us a bit about the experience of that next as well then? Yeah, absolutely. It was fascinating for me because it was my first ever experience of editing. So I was working with Nine Arches Press and I love what they do. They have an association with Warwick, which is great. And it was thanks to um, my, my study and later my work at Warwick that I was introduced to the brilliant Jane Kamein. So there was funding from the university to publish that anthology. What I'm really interested in is that culture and cultivation as, as words come from the same root. I, I'm pretty sure I learned that from Jonathan Bates' work. And for me, that's really, really interesting. So I was curious about orchards. I was curious about the place that they have in our culture. And that could be traditions like, like wassailing right, you know, international aspects of, of what apples do and are in uh, our society. And um, it was great fun because there were all kinds of, of brilliant poets uh, who submitted poems for that. I wish I could have taken more. And it helped me to develop as an editor. I will always be grateful to George Tooley, who edited it with me, uh, for helping me understand what, what it means to put poems together, to get them to 
talk to each other almost. Um, I'm grateful to the poets as well. We had some brilliant, brilliant work for it. Uh, and of course, there's a poem about drinking cider, which oh, I will dear. always approve of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to drink cider as a waiter with sugar enough. <laughs> Back over no, nipper, maybe so not nowadays. I'm, I'm diabetic, so sugar's out of question, but I'm, uh, I remember cider, so <laughs> what sandwich that oh, yeah. need to do to me? Oh, great. So what, what sort of cider do you like drinking then, on a completely different note? Then? Do you have any sort of favourite ciders? I like Perry. I like a little bit of Perry. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I like French ciders and I like anything from the West Country. But um, yeah, a long time ago, a long <laughs> time ago, when I was a student, we did make our own scrumpy as well, which was hilarious and oh. great fun. It probably, it's probably took, it probably took you a while to get out of the hangover, that was probably ridiculous. <laughs> that stuff was dangerous, and <laughs> It was dangerous. It came out cloudy. It oh. looked like Irish stout. It was that. Oh, no, no, no. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine that spread away that and then like it's um I got drunk when I was a wee nipper in Manchester a few times on the pure there used to be a pub between the central mansion, it's shut completely now. And I used to give you pints of it and it was like that cloudy. It was like just straight fog on the glass and after two pints of it you need to carry out the pub. <laughs> so I remember that. <laughs> I know, that's drinking storage yeah. for another day, right? So because I've got a few I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, we made we made ours in a bin, very glamorous. <laughs> it had to be done, right? They always say when you're a student, you've got to do it, haven't you? So live yeah. life to the live life to the max, and max is the word it's, there. <laughs> now it's free alcohol, free in inverted commas. Yeah. Oh, of course, students, isn't it? Anything the cheapest way you can, basically. Now, what we're here to, to talk about today, really, is that we took us twenty minutes to get to this stage. Is about your new collection, culture, grief, and healing. Now. Oh, she's due out, I know, on the 30th of June. And this podcast will be out literally just after that, I reckon, so all been well. So well, tell people a little bit about the process of this, because it's quite an interesting story behind this collection. I've been reading, reading up about this. Sure, yeah. Um, well, my pamphlet, Translating Mountains, was written in memory of my dad. And I was lucky enough to work with a lot of different communities who had been affected by grief. Grief can be very difficult to talk about. I think maybe in England we're a little bit buttoned up about it as well. However, there is a massive need to talk about grief at the moment. A huge need. The death toll from the coronavirus is rising. It's been high in Britain. And yeah, behind every statistic is a family in mourning. Behind every statistic is a friendship group that has lost somebody. And actually, it's become a massive issue now in a way that I could not have foreseen when I first started putting this kind of work together. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge deal. At the same time, People are grieving for the victims of police brutality and they're thinking about historical memory and racism. So there is this, this huge kind of collective sense of grief that affects different communities in different ways. And actually, this is this is a how-to book if in some tiny way it could offer a small comfort to people that would be great and in a sense it's a thank you letter to the nhs really so some of the people i worked with uh in terms of doing writing workshops for people who'd been affected by loss um were, were set up for me by the nhs lancashire recovery college so I have huge admiration for what they do. It's an approach to helping people improve their well-being that has nothing to do with drugs, hospitals or doctors. It's within the community and that's beautiful. And um, people need social support because of lockdown. They need social support when they have been bereaved because if somebody central to your life is gone, then you need to make connections. So the actual process of putting this book together stems from those workshops. 
I'm really indebted to counsellors um, and therapists and psychologists whom I've worked with. And they've been at the university where I work and they've been at hospices um, and they've been in the community. And I have learned so much from them. I wasn't really very aware about arts for well-being before I embarked on this. It was a big adventure for me and it was a new journey. Um, and part of the project was editing an issue of Magma Poetry magazine. So I'd been really, really lucky to be able to work with Magma. I kind of gave them my CV, crossed my fingers and toes. As you, as you do, yeah. <laughs> I really, really cross your fingers and toes. And I said, look, you know, I'd like to do some editing with you. I think that would be amazing. Would you have me? And they said, yes, that would be good. So I was really lucky. Um, and we were doubly lucky when we got an Arts Council grant to fund an issue on, of Magma Poetry on the theme of loss. So for that, uh, what my friend Adam Lowe and I did was to bring together some poets with some psychologists and counsellors. And the poets would have known a lot about writing therapy. Some of them were practising counsellors already. Um, there were maybe some branches of psychology they didn't know so much about. So the neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Churchill, who works uh, at the University of Central Lancashire, was chatting to Malika Booker and to the amazing Jackie Kay. We were very lucky to be able to work with her and to have a poem from her. And um, Lowry Douthwaite was also chatting to Malika Booker at a collaboration event. And I'll say a little bit more about Malika's work in a second because something wonderful has happened for her. Mm. But, yeah. Adam and I were inundated with poems for editing the loss issue. We had over 8,000. <laughs> I was a bit overwhelmed and actually... Adam can't see this. They see my face going... <laughs> yeah that was my reaction too I was thinking oh my goodness this is more than Magma's ever had it's wonderful because that theme connects with people and they are sharing their experiences but the problem is you have to take just a tiny smidgen of what you get yeah. so it's it's kind that of upsetting. selection process must have been a nightmare <laughs> In some ways, it was a nightmare. I mean, it's a privilege if people send you yeah. your work. It's, it's wonderful and it's beautiful. Um, and loss affects so many people that they were touched by the theme. Uh, but you, you, have to be, you have to be far more selective than you would like to be. So you sort of get into this dilemma where you think, oh, goodness, what, what can I do? I really like that poem and I, I, can't, I can't include it. So... <laughs> It's it's an interesting process because you feel like poacher turned gamekeeper as a magazine editor. I'm normally the one who's getting the rejections here. And um, I kind of have a little bit more of an understanding about the process. It, it can be, uh, yeah, that there's a lot of writing out there. There's a lot of excellent work being produced. So poetry in the UK is healthy. And it makes me think that if you want a brilliant outlet for your work, you could do what some of my friends have done. My mates Kostya Chalakis and Romelin Ante have set up their own poetry magazine. They've set up Piranha Poetry. So you can actually do your own magazine. Um, but I'm kind of veering off topic, really. I wanted <laughs> uh, to put together the materials that I'd created for the workshops for writing workshops and I was lucky to be able to use poetry that had been appearing in the magma loss issue and also work by poets I really admired um, and they ranged from stellar writers like Kathleen Jamie who was really generous Great in that oh she's superb I love her nature writing and I love her poetry I think they they overlap in beautiful ways Anyway, she let us have a prose poem of hers about healing, which is fantastic. We had a poem by Malika Booker, uh, an author whom I admire immensely. And Malika's poem that was in Magma, the loss issue, has been shortlisted for the Forward Prize. I, oh, I just jumped for joy when I heard that because oh, it is yeah. so well-deserved. Well done. How stunning. And it's a beautiful poem of healing, which I think will touch many people. It's called The Little Miracles, and you can find that in Magma, The Loss Issue. 
and for poetry, grief and healing, I, I wanted to celebrate the work of just a handful of poets I love. So Adam Lowe has some poems there. The brilliant Karen McCarthy Wolf has some incredibly beautiful, piercingly beautiful poems of loss and, and mourning in that book. And I'm really grateful to her for allowing us to republish them. And what I want the book to do is to begin quite gently with the process of thinking about loss and thinking about loss through the loss of a precious object. Grief for a person can be shattering, it can be overwhelming. So it's a very gentle first step that people can use and they can gradually begin to think about these issues and the emotions they throw up. Uh, and it begins um, to let people look at poems about water and, and the journey of life and what it's like if you hit a waterfall like, like bereavement, how that can put people into a spin and, and what that can do to our state of mind, which can be profound. Um, it goes through looking at, at various writing exercises to do with memory, the masks we wear in society, and it ends with just taking some small steps on the path towards healing that might be far away from some people. In fact, it could seem very different if they and very distant if they've been affected by the virus. I, I understand that. And it's something that people can work through gradually if they want. It could be a companion on, on the various stages I don't really want to call them stages um, I want to talk about the process of grieving which can take many many months if not years uh, and if it can offer some small comfort to people then that would be wonderful I would be very happy brilliant now obviously in relation to this collection itself how long did it mm -hmm. take to get your poems together for this then? it was done quickly what I really wanted was to use some of the poems from Magma, the loss issue, but broaden its scope. I had the materials from the Lancashire Recovery College uh, and I had the outlines for the workshops, but they had to be adapted for a little bit and, I, and um, for the, the format of the textbook. And I've learned a lot from therapists about how to run a productive and humane and gentle workshop on this incredibly sensitive topic it was important to get it right so i've learned a massive amount along the way the, the book itself was put together quite quickly but i did run through the material at great length when i was giving resources to bereavement charities and when i was spreading the word a bit about uh the, the writing workshop format that i had so, you know, Adam Lowe, the publisher, has been great throughout this whole process. We delayed the publication a little bit because we wanted to make sure that the word was spread properly and it's, it's actually been talked about in the local media quite a lot in Lancashire, which is a lovely thing. That's really, really fantastic. Um, so, it felt as though it, it was pulled together at some speed and you have to go through the process of getting permissions from the poets, of course, and they've been very, very generous with us. Weird delays have happened because of the virus, of course. As it does, yeah. <laughs> very strange things have happened because of lockdown and there have been the great tragedies that people have experienced on a community level and on a personal level. They've also been peculiar things like not being able to send out contributors copies yet because I'd like to send them from my workplace at the university and I, I can't because we're in lockdown and yeah it, it was assembled quite fast but but things kind of the cogs turned maybe a little bit more slowly in, in some places and it's been a strange mixture of things happening quickly and suddenly and and then there being some delays yeah, and they're getting up late with that. So, and if people obviously wondering, the collection's actually coming out on the 30th of June. Now, if right. people want to get a hold of it, where is it best going to get its collection? 
They can go to Doghorn Publishing's website, which is run by Adam Lowe. They can go to Amazon or they can go to Lulu Books. So there are a few different websites where people Brilliant. can get. Now, do you have any sort of plans you can reveal that you're doing next after this next project's in mind? Sure. I had a really lucky beginning to 2020 and it was so badly needed because our economy is in, is in uncertainty because of the virus. A lot of people are feeling dreadfully stressed and uncertain as a result. Um, and there will be some activities I can do that will, in a tiny way, um, help a little bit with helping people's poems uh, get into print. So I'm hugely excited. In early 2020, I had a massive surprise. Um, I heard from the Arts and Humanities Research Council that I had won a grant from them. This is a two-year project and for any academic, you get as many rejection letters from funders as you do from magazine editors. Believe me, it's a process of learning um, that can feel a little bit hard one sometimes. So I was over the moon. It was a massive surprise. It was so much of a surprise that I'd already started re-editing the thing, ready for resubmission because I was so <laughs> certain that there was going to be a no. So that is brilliant. Uh, it's an environmental poetry project. It's called Anthropocene Poetry. So the Anthropocene is this idea that's come from uh, biologists, geologists and climate scientists and it considers human beings as maybe having a geological impact on the environment. It's been debated a lot by geologists and also by humanities people so I, I'm interested in those debates and I want to open a bit of a space uh, to look at how literature can think about these ideas. So I'm really excited. I'm going to be digging into the archive of Shane <laughs> I have to do it after lockdown. So <laughs> I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm just... I'm just full of excitement about... Chops in the heels is saying Manchester for that. Definitely. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's a good way of putting it. And from what I've seen already, there were environmental causes that Seamus Heaney supported, which makes me really, really intrigued. Um, but what I'm interested in is how he wrote about climate change, which he was doing towards the end of his career in a, a really beautiful way. I'm interested in other people's archives as well. So I've had a brief glimpse at the archive of Pascal Petit. Petit has mentored me. She is a writer whose work is a touchstone for mine. What she's writing about the environment now is stunning. She even has a poem called Anthropocene that's recently <laughs> come out in the New Statesman. Really? So I'm excited about um, what I, I might find as I go through the notebooks. And it was really generous of, of her to let me have this window into what she does so that's going to be an academic book um i will be working with some poets to pair them up with some geologists and we are going to put the resulting poems in magma magazine they're working yeah i'm i'm ridiculously excited about this i mean <laughs> i i remember thinking wouldn't it be fun to get people to to get ideas together about the environment about deep time um about the geological past but also about the future we might be going towards so my new poems are really interested in climate change this is just a massive 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 issue and i think poets <laughs> are turning their lenses on it there aren't any easy solutions or there aren't easy ways to write about this because it is so huge uh, and I think environmental scientists and geologists are, are going to be learning a lot from the poets I hope so I'm I'm grateful to them and uh, there'll be the opportunity for people to send their poems to an Anthropocene issue of Magma magazine in early 2021 so I'm excited about that I, I'm intrigued about all the forms that environmental poetry will be taking at that point and you know i'm not afraid of asking people to think about you know is the anthropocene 
not the right lens that we should be <laughs> approaching this through? Is it, is it not the right concept? What about environmental justice? What about the future? You know, I, I'm totally open to all those issues and I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. It sounds like you're going to be mad busy definitely in the next couple of months. That's Very sure. busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, if people want to find out more about you, I know obviously they're probably best coming to your official website, aren't they? <laughs> on riddick.org and we correct that one on yeah. there, so. I've got it on riddick.org that you can take a look at um, yes. there'll be uh, some new things on my staff profile page at UCLan as well uh, they can always take a look so there are a few different ways um, also if people are interested in taking a look at some pamphlets there's always nice forks and spoons presses website uh, there's the Poetry Businesses website and there's Seren's website. I love indie presses. Oh, so yeah. do check out their authors if you fancy it, guys. You're also, you're also on Twitter as well, aren't you? So under oh, I, I love Twitter. Yeah, I love Twitter. Brilliant. Well, that's all my questions for today on the chat side. So I'm going to take a quick break, everybody. And I'm going to, to do a couple of pieces for us. So a brilliant chat today, everyone. Thank you. Very, very informative. So, so thank you again. Thanks. See you Thank you, Andy. Take care. See you in a minute. Bye. Spock on Hi, guys. Okay, straight on to one. I know she's got five poems for us. I'm looking forward to this one. Over to you. So, my dad was a petroleum engineer and he worked offshore on the North Sea oil platforms near Aberdeen. And later, he took my whole family to Kuwait City. Now, this was formative and totally life-changing for us. If I'm interested in deep time and climate change, this is where it all comes from. So there were some really interesting things that, that came out of this, and I didn't know how to write about the experience for years. I was putting it off, and then I thought, I've just got to go for it. My dad's boss in Kuwait was the only woman to tackle the famous oil fires uh, set after the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq in 1991. I was there a few years after that had happened. Um, and people at my school would tell Gulf War stories, and some of them absolutely horrific. So I was interested in how oil played a role in that conflict. And you'll hear some voices that are in quotation marks in my poem that tell a few of these stories. Um, and this poem is called In Oils and it looks at it looks at what oil does for better and most definitely for worse. In oils. Between fjords and the firth, the rig whirred from its crown block to the pit of its possum belly. My father left at dawn to work the offshore fields. He mixed with roughnecks and a crude talking tool pusher. Their toil lit the flare stack, sparked fuses, stoked motors. Farther north, the trickle and tick of ice flows. That year's gales uprooted dunes, hurled gulls along Union Street. The derrick braced its anchors, strained against the storm surge. His chair sat empty. The desk paperweight, a drop of Brent crude glowed in glass, the tarry slick levelling as I tilted it. I tried to pray for breezes to ferry him home, but all I could invoke were fields of North Sea oil. Magnus, Beatrice, loyal. I was nine when my father made me leave. He drilled an emirate with straight rule borders, the heat on the runway like the breath of a foundry. My Narnia books arrived after their voyage along the Suez Canal in the sea freight. Wearing shorts was forbidden, even for men. Mirage City, under the warp shimmer of 50 degrees, sun beetle metal, light struck glass, the bombed out bridge to Bubian Island. At the sandstone ridge on the edge of Iraq, herdsmen turned camels loose to trigger mines. At school they preached that oil was fossil light, one barrelful did 12 years human work. 
Dad's friends talked, Bonnie Light, Brent Blend, sour heavy crude, counting days and gallons. Oil was refined, but its temper had a flashpoint. I'd listen from the landing. They kicked down the door of the neighbor's shop and bullets started shattering the windows. Khalid and I ran. We saw tanks lumbering down Gulf Street. They stole everything, air conditioners, cigarettes, then torched the ground floor. My cousin shot at the police station they'd seized. They tore out his eyes. The burning pipeline howled, Sarah said like a jet engine. Fire trenches and oil lakes under a sky dark at midday. Six million barrels of light, sweet, crude. I watched birds wading in the slip ponds. There was a hoopoe drinking petroleum, an oiled eagle panting for water. Airstrike on the Basra Road. The man clawed at the windscreen, trying to smash free before the petrol tank blew. An American camera blinked at his burnt-out sockets. From Anchorage, Calgary, Houston or Galveston, my father returned, jet-lagged and running fumes to plant English lavender on Texan thyme. I'd see him at the sink scrubbing his hands. I've fixed the engine. He'd show his palms. I'd watch him scouring skin wouldn't come clean. His shirts would smell of earth and gasoline. Fantastic. That's really, really evocative that. That's an incredible piece. I really felt like I was there with that. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Is that from your new collection as well? Is that from some previous thing? Yeah, it's come out in my latest pamphlet, Spike Nard, uh, in a slightly doctored form. I always change my mind about things and edit bits. <laughs> Usual Kay Lamb saying so, and so I'm always changing things. <laughs> 10, 20 years later, I can be the same. Now, okay, what's your second piece today? It's called Madness Lake. Now, my dad's hobby was hiking. Uh, I think there's, I, I've been a bit bitten by the bug as well because that's what I love too. I, I was up in the Lake District yesterday and it was glorious. So um, I think he'd be chuffed to know that I'm, I'm still enjoying the mountains. And one side of my family was Swiss. And when I went to visit my grandmother, um, we would be taken hiking sometimes, but it was quite easy walking. Um, on reflection, at the time when you're a child and you're at primary school, all mountains seem intimidating and massive, even if when you look back they were hills. Uh, and I think you'll probably see how my worries about climate change feed into ideas about grief in this poem in quite a subtle way. So I'm looking at the names of landscapes and hills and glaciers in this poem um, and it's set in Alpine France and it's about a lake that has a very weird name Lac du Folie if you translate it it sounds a little bit like Madness Lake so that's the title of the poem Madness Lake not even when we scaled the ice scoured dal did I think it was possible that he, like a glacier, could change state from solid to intangible in the pores between my heartbeats. Grinning and mopping his sunburnt brow, my father seemed imperishable as the snow-hooded plant overhead. When we reached the lake, the glacier carved with a gunshot jostled its floating bergs its snout already retreating. Twenty years to the day since we last trekked this crest-cross path to Lac de Folie, Madness Lake. The sign still reads, caution, year-round snow, but the flows are thin water. The grief, now ten months deep. 
Fantastic. Fantastic, yeah. Now a complete different change of tone there. Really, and I love the ending on that as well. Great stuff. Okay, straight into number three then. <laughs> this is called Translating Mountains from the Gallic, and it's kind of a bit of a keystone for my pamphlet, Translating Mountains. Um, as I've mentioned, I was born in Scotland. I've not been able to live there for ages, and I, I miss it, and I always go back. But, you know, it's changed fundamentally since I was a child. Uh, and it's a landscape that will always be deeply special to me. Translating mountains from the Gaelic. A pebble on the tongue and a chockstone in the throat. Ben Luil becomes Ben Loyal. Ben Uash eroded to Ben Wivis. Botan Jowin turns from demon's penis to devil's point. My voice, a stream gorge where quartz chunks clatter. Last summer, I shouldered my red rucksack, a water flask and a vial of his ash. A deer fly, its eyes paired up ringstones hovered to steal my blood, my language, a trespasser. I poured his English dust to feed the roots of the hill's oldest pine. Let the rain seep through him, she hallion transforming him to earth. Brilliant, absolutely superb that. Yeah, God, that's beautiful, that one. I've, my family's actually from Scotland, originally. Right, oh. right I've in Scotland, yeah. My dad's, dad was born in Edinburgh. But well, I've never been, to be honest, that's because my dad, his dad moved down to Manchester and my dad fought a few years later, basically. So it's like I've got about, I'm about a quarter Scottish, so. I will get up there Sunday, because... And the dad's side, his mum was Irish. So I went to Dublin for the first time about 10 years ago. And that's, again, it's a marvellous place. You've got, you've got to visit your roots. I'm always going to be there myself. Right. Yeah. That's why I, I could really see the country on that. I thought, superb. Great piece. Yeah. I'm letting you move straight under number four, then. I don't, I don't want to get you cut off unless there's a connection here. So. <laughs> so bit of a change in topic really this is more a kind of mythical folktale poem so i was reading a book um, about environmental writing and about climate change issues and the writer um it's timothy clark was suggesting this idea that somebody's carbon footprint could be like their double it exists in the atmosphere for years after they are gone. And this, this idea intrigued me and it haunted me. But this is also a, a peculiar folktale poem about transformations and revenge. It's called In the Burning Season. She knocked one night as the clock tricked through shortening dark. Brows and eyes call copies of mine, but her braid was auburn. She read my face, cotched by the stove and stirred the embers. Make yourself at home, she told me, gorging the brazier on my best coal. We were up with the next day to prune my apples, summer king, beauty of bath. Hard frost hissed at the heat of her instep. A fingertip tapped on bark. Nude pear trees frothed with blossom. Mayweed and nightshade rioted across the January field. The sky a flashover. To teach me pyrography, she scored her name, two letters from mine, into the mantle. I bit my yell in two when... Come on, dare you? She turned the branding iron on my forearm. Joe said he'd flown to meet partners in Frankfurt. The flags and thatch creaked themselves to sleep. My ghost crept to the ensuite and caught her in the bathtub, blowing him a light. So I bolted downstairs triple click the locks and gave that pair and the house a gasoline shower 
These fingers are still webbed with scars. Droz bought a flat in the West End. My hair has grown back red. Wow, that's completely different to your other pieces. Do you like doing a lot of fancy thought poems, do you? I love them. Yeah, you can tell, you can tell you enjoy writing here and that was incredible, that piece. Yeah, thank you. I'm absolutely mad about very mythical poetry that sort of exists in that nasty between facts and reality. I think uh, if you overdose on the Lama's Hiling by Ian Dewig, um, and you read Pascal Petit's work and you read John Burnside, then you're going to be influenced at some level, aren't you? So I think maybe come out of that space. That was actually incredible. I was just sat there thinking, wow, <laughs> absolutely superb. Okay, we're on, to, we're on to the big finale now. So, over to you. <laughs> I wanted to give you a poem about environmental resilience and resistance, really. So I get very worried about wildlife crime. I get very upset if ever I hear about it. Um, but at the same time, I've always been interested in writing about animals in a way that I, I hope isn't necessarily reinventing the, the Ted Hughes wheel. <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite getting there, but it's a dangerous thing, I guess. Um, I was lucky enough to go hiking in winter in Scotland and I saw 10 hares on one hill and I could not believe my wow. eyes. It was like being in a strange folkloric tale, 10 mountain hares. Wow, that is rare. <laughs> but they are a persecuted species. They are shot on grouse moors, which um, deeply, deeply worries me. And I wanted to condense my wish for survival, really, and for the natural world into this little short poem about mountain hares and the wonderful creatures we have in our mountains. Mountain hare. Solid mist on speed. A hare springs from the prayer of a lost mountaineer. Jink through the peat banks, lepus, upland leaper. Hear the marksman's heart before he hits his mark. Brilliant. And people notice that we've got a nice sound effect right at the back of it then, didn't we? <laughs> You're getting lockdown side effects. Oh, I do. It's, oh, it's brilliant, Von Max. The amount of times and I've been podcasting people. I get the police, because we live where we live, there's a side road. A lot of times we get ambulances and police cars going past. It's incredible. <laughs> I can rerun it if it's annoying because it's no. a bit of an urban noise for a very rural poet. Oh! Ask <laughs> <laughs> no, is great, actually. It brings your point to life, though, the fact that there's the extra bit of emphasis at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you again today, Yvonne. It's been a pleasure. and I've really, really enjoyed it. Now, hang around. I need a quick worthy off mic. This is Andy N. Doing the thumbs up to Yvonne, turn back to me. Thank you again for that pleasure. And we'll see you all thank soon, guys. You. Stay safe and stay safe. Thank you. Bye. Brilliant. That was a great little blast poem, that. It was just it's surreal, wasn't it, with the ambulance in the background there? Weird. I was wondering about that and I deliberately shut the door because the builders are making a noise outside. But um, anyway, Rick, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now, I need you to do me a quick favour as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to check the schedules later on for the podcast. But I'm going to, I'm aiming to bring this out round about when your book's out, okay? I think oh, it'll yeah. be just after because I've got a gap in the schedules so, so I can bring it forward for you as a favour, okay? But can you do me a favour? Send me over by Facebook a press photo I can put, use of you to go with the podcast. Mm -hmm. now, I've got all the links I need. Everything else is all ready. So all I need to do is um, I'll basically get, edit it all together and then I'll, I'll have it ready tonight. But then I'll yeah. set it to be released in about two weeks' time for you. 
I think it'll be the day after, probably the first of July, that probably go live. It'll be just after you book launch yourself. So ideal. Thank you very, very much. That's really good news, Andy. I do appreciate your support for this project because yeah, I mean for creative people, you know, this is this is a challenging time and um yeah. yeah. And I nearly lost my dad last year with it, so my dad had a stroke back in the last year. And we just got him back on his feet, then we've gone to lockdown. So so I can instant soon as I saw that I wanted to chat to you about it. I thought and I knew Amanda would want partner would want to hear it as well without her dad. So that's why it made sense for both of us to she she both she was saying to me, approach you straight away. So that's <laughs> been a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, really, really good to chat to you. And you do a great job of putting your interviewees at ease, Andy, because I get nervous before interviews and I was great with this. I felt really yeah. chilled. That's a lovely skill to have. And I used, I've got better at it because it's when I first did it, I used to like constantly cut people off and I learned to, you know, nowadays I just listen to people more and then just try and keep the movement along. Because do you know, it's I don't, I don't like asking direct questions. I like to just move the topic along at its own natural pace. And we've done mm -hmm. probably yeah. well. It, it's we've got two minutes left, <laughs> so we've chatted for another, chatted for an hour and a quarter. So we've done all right there. And there's probably mm -hmm. about forty-five to fifty minutes of footage. So it's brilliant. So yeah, well, it takes so long to edit, Andy. Really, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Thank you for your yeah, work. it's fine. Work. It's not going to take long, this, because all I need to do, I know we're okay. I think the sound levels are right. And I'm going to have to go back and do a quick edit and your second poem. I know you fluffed it a bit, that happens. And then it'll be ready. Okay, so we'll take long that. So get a picture over to me and we'll speak soon, okay? And we'll keep a job charge. I'll oh, welcome to another session with you on in the future if you want to. Thank you so much. This is really generous, Andy. I appreciate yeah. it. Really enjoyed it. I'll have to go to I've got to find Amanda now. Good text you, okay? Take care. See you soon. Bye. Lovely to see you. Lovely to meet you. See you soon. Bye. Spoke on it.